Shortcast Club. Hi, I'm Avi, founder of Shortcast Club. Each week, we highlight some of our favorite episodes on Shortcast Club. If you like variety, this is the podcast for you. And we've got some good ones for you this week, so let's dive right in. Also, thanks to all our new subscribers on Podbean, where we are currently being featured. Thank you. First, an episode of Talking Trash with Stacy Savage. Stacy, also known as the Texas Trash Talker, is a zero-waste expert helping businesses reduce waste. In this episode, she explains why some recycling is dumped in landfills instead of getting recycled, and what we can do about it. Like in most things, it's not as simple as you might think. I love how recycling is like, here's my recycling, and the recycling company is like, we'll take this and recycle it for you, and then none of it gets recycled. It's a fun little performance we put on regularly. Eh, that's not entirely true. Don't get me wrong, I love the fact that you care about what's happening to our recyclable items. As a zero waste expert and recycling nerd for 20 years, I feel there's a critical component of your argument that's missing. There are a bunch of whys that should be asked around the issue of why do recyclable items go to the landfill if they're not going to be recycled, why am I recycling them anyway? Number one is cross-contamination. A lot of times there's trash and food waste in the recycling bin, meaning the entire load. Uh, If it's about 25 to 30% too contaminated to recycle, then the whole thing goes to landfill. That's because there's a severe lack of recycling education of how to do it properly. And it's really on the shoulders of the municipality, the local city government that rolls out recycling programs. Maybe it's the county government or the private hauler, uh, the private company that takes these materials from your curbside or from your apartment complex, your business. Um, If there's a lack of recycling, there's a lot of confusion, which causes the cross-contamination. It's far too expensive for a recycling company to pull out all the trash and the food waste and uh, deal with dirty recyclables. So it goes to landfill. Another why is the materials market. Uh, these recyclable items are commodities on the, on the um, materials market. And that means that they can be bought and sold to remanufacture new products. Recyclers need clean, dry products to sell on the market in order for them to be of value. If the contamination rate is too high system-wide across a certain uh, material, let's say cardboard or your example, plastic, uh, it's gonna drive the uh, value down uh, for the buyers. This means they're gonna give a lower price to the recycling plant that takes the materials. This drives down the national commodities pricing, meaning that recyclers sometimes have to hoard and stockpile their materials on site before that they can be recycled um, whenever the prices go back up. So it always starts with us, the generators of the material, handling those materials properly and not contaminating them. It affects the entire system downstream, which also affects the further creation of well-paying green jobs. I hope this helps and let me know if you have any other questions. Well, one thing is for sure. I'll be doing my best to clean empty jars of peanut butter before tossing them in the blue bin from now on. Next, we hear from Marcel Eaton, an author, editor, and writing coach. Marcel is the author of the book The Elysian Hunt. In this episode, she talks about a book she recently read, A Good Girl's Guide to Murder, 
and a technique in the book that she wishes more mystery novels followed. Just finished A Good Girl's Guide to Murder a couple days ago, and it did something that so many murder mysteries don't do, and I appreciated it so much. I'm going to put it back and tell you. The main character took new information, processed it in their mind, and came out with new theories that actually made sense. And she was constantly exploring new potential leads and new potential suspects. I feel like in so many murder mysteries, the character, the main character, comes off as like, dumb because all the crew clues are presented to you and you see them and you interpret them but they just don't they'll be like looking in the wrong direction and like obviously not considering all the information they've been given and it's so frustrating because you're here like it's obviously this person but they're still like over here looking at someone who's obviously not involved well that being said one other thing that i get asked a lot is how to include maps text messages, just things that don't normally go in books. As for maps, obviously there's a lot of maps in fantasy books, so I'm not talking about fantasy in this specific video. And if that's something you've been wondering about, I definitely recommend checking out A Good Girl's Guide to Murder because this is done in the book in a way that is not redundant and like it feels necessary to the story. I had such a fun time. Let me know if you guys liked it, if you read it, and if you liked it in the comments. My math teachers always used to make the same point. Show your thinking. Third, we have an insightful episode from Samantha Chung's podcast, Simplifying Sam, the shortcast. She discusses, when is self-improvement a trap? Okay, literally, what would your life look like if you did not care about furthering yourself, optimizing yourself, advancing yourself, or improving yourself? I think that you would realize that you actually have nothing to do with yourself because everything you do is in this quest or pursuit of perfection. You need to lose a few more pounds. You need to make a few thousand more dollars. Like everything needs to somehow fix the not enoughness that you feel. You have a free moment to yourself. Well, you need to spend that like learning. You're like reading a book or something. And I'm not demonizing wanting to learn, but what I'm demonizing is what motivation is actually backing that action. Are you pursuing that action from a sense of I'm not okay as I am, I'm not enough, therefore I need to fill this gap with more knowledge, information, or dollars? I actually realized a couple years ago that this is how I was living my entire life. Every single moment was being used for self-optimization. My ideal self was always in some ideal future, which by the way, never came because the future is imagination. And I was essentially just perpetually unhappy. Like nothing was ever enough for me. It was always that I needed more money or more time or more knowledge. It was never allowing the current present self that I was being to be enough. And if I wasn't enough, then I obviously couldn't be happy. So until I realized I was in this pattern, I was stuck in what I call the paradigm of fixing yourself. This is actually what my entire book is going to be about because you can't fix yourself to a perfect version when you are still stuck in the paradigm of fixing yourself. It is only actually through leaving the paradigm of constantly trying to fix yourself that you become fixed, which isn't actually really fixing at all because it's realizing that nothing ever needed to be fixed, but you can't realize that in the paradigm where you constantly need another fix. It's kind of like saying, I'm going to take away your drugs now. You don't get to experience them. And you being like, but wait, how will I ever feel good again? And then I say, well, we're going to detox from this and you're going to realize that you don't need them anymore. But at this point, you have been completely convinced that you cannot live a life that feels good to you at all without the drugs. But obviously from a higher perspective, you know that there is a reality beyond drugs and you know that you can restore your original positive state. 
it really is quite the same with exiting the paradigm of fixing yourself. Because when you came into the world, you were unfixable because there was nothing to be fixed. You were literally a perfect, whole, creative, beautiful being who was convinced of imperfection. We are playing the game of imperfection. And leaving the paradigm of fixing yourself is essentially saying, I will no longer play that game. I am consistently blown away by how perceptive Samantha is in the quality of her insights. Next, we hear from Daniel Lim, who has reviewed over 5,000 college applications. He provides insights on the ultra-competitive world of elite college admissions, where a valedictorian with perfect SAT scores is average. If you or someone you love is on the college track, or honestly, if you just find this interesting, you should listen to more of his episodes. I'm going to play two of his episodes for you now that I think go well together. Together, they're about three minutes long and very revealing. I'm going to say this valedictorian has a pretty average college application. Yes, she had a 4.0 GPA. Yes, she was valedictorian. Yes, she had probably two questions wrong on her SAT total. But I mean, if you look at her awards, it's really nothing crazy. Book award, sports hall of fame student athlete, school's top award for citizenship, school's top award for leadership. I mean, if you look at his clubs, he was part of the engineering program, special Olympics club, one love club, all stuff that he just did at school. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it's just not really anything particularly special. He only applied to what? Five schools here? Prince UNC, UVA, Duke, and Washington and Lee. Now, if I had to guess, I would probably say he had a tough chance at Princeton and Duke, given that they are top 20s. So you'd be very surprised as to where he actually got in. All for part two to see the results. This video, I said that this valedictorian's application was average. Let me make a clarification. Number one, I apologize. Sometimes your boy gotta do some clickbaiting to get some views. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Number two, as someone who has read hundreds and hundreds of applications at this point, a lot of the applications that you see that get into the Ivy Leagues, that get into Harvard, are insane applications. That isn't to say that the student that I reviewed in the video was average. Yes, by the average student standard, 1580 SAT and valedictorian is nowhere near average. Clearly. But the thing is, most of my content is focused on top 20 admissions. So how to get into the top 20 universities in the world. Generally speaking, great stats only gets you so far. The average SAT of a Harvard applicant last year was something like a 1560. There are 8,000 valedictorians that apply to Harvard every single year. But yes, I apologize. It was a little bit misleading. I didn't mean to say that this student was average from an average American student standpoint. I'm talking average on the standpoint of a student who's applying to a top 20 university. That's all. I'm just grateful I don't have to apply for college again. But here's the second episode from Danielle Lim, which frankly gives me a bit more hope. Be your weird self. Okay, so I've reviewed 5,000 applications, or, or a little more than 5,000 at this point. And this is something that I feel like most people don't really know, or most people have just never thought about. For the most part, I've seen mostly more weird kids get into good universities, as opposed to your traditional research and accolades and whatever. For example, I saw one kid, I reviewed this kid's application maybe like two months ago or three months ago, and the main extracurricular that he was a part of was doing Elvis Presley impressions. There was another kid that I reviewed a little more like three weeks ago, and I have him on my podcast. He's going to come on very soon. And his main extracurriculars were judo and being good at Fortnite. And guess where both of them got into? They both got into Harvard. The moral of the story and something that you should focus on now that you know this information is that you don't need to do the traditional research and 
you know, crazy awards and competitions in order to get into top universities. You're actually probably better off doing something that you're actually passionate about because that passion will show through in your essays and the way that you word your extracurriculars even on the Common App. Follow for more niche advice. Next, we hear from Joshua Terhun, a therapist who answers the question, what can parents do to repair the damage of authoritarian parenting? Many in the current generation of parents aspire to practice gentle parenting. So how do they make that change? Is it possible? I'm glad you brought this up because I have worked with some parents that have made some significant changes. Oftentimes it helps with getting their own individual therapy. One thing I highly emphasize is whether it's parenting or therapy, it's an inside out process. So you can't teach someone skills that you yourself don't have. So if you want your kid to tolerate strong emotions and to use their words, you need to model that. I think it was like Martin Luther King that said, riots are the language of the unheard. Well, this kid scribbling down and digging his heels in, it's communication, right? Wouldn't it make sense to teach him a better way to communicate what's going on and to be aware of what's going on? This mom has said multiple times, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. Well, how's he supposed to know how he's feeling if nobody cares enough to hear him or help him develop that awareness? And this big lack of emotional connection is a sign of what's called the dismissive avoidant attachment style. So if I were to venture a guess, I would assume that she's had to do things all on her own for much of her life. Because the I don't care is a very paradoxical statement, right? Because if you don't care, why do you need to say it? And sometimes in my back of my head or even out loud, I'll ask either kind of two questions, either how old do you feel right now? Sounds like she might, this might be like a 12 year old's voice or maybe that, that kind of 12 to 15 age range. I don't care. I do care, but it hurts. Or whose voice is this? Is this a parent saying that to little her? And instead of facing that harsh reality that her parents don't love her and don't care for her, she then she chooses to suppress her own emotions and I don't care as a way to protect herself. So grieving that loss and all of those emotional wounds. And then learning how to trust other people, learning how to care and be vulnerable. Because as, as much as I've dragged her in this, there's a lot of things that she's doing well too. I mean, she deeply cares about helping her son navigate the world and develop a strong work ethic and help teach him right from wrong. Where I disagree with her is how she's teaching it. Next up in our lineup today, we hear from Bill Harper, a marketing leader, and what may be a core lesson from his podcast, Don't Just Win, Dominate. It's about how you need to understand what it is you are actually selling. I feel like this is the essence of marketing, and everything else is just details. 
If you want people to see the maximum value that you and your brand bring to their situation, you have to understand what you're really selling. And I use this example all the time because it's easy. If you have a towing company, you're not actually selling towing. Nobody cares about your company or your trucks or your people or your training or your awards or your history. Nobody gives a rat's ass about any of that. What they care about is how fast can you end this unexpected interruption that is me sitting on the side of the road. That's all that they care about. And using that same logic, every business in the world, every personal brand, every guru, every everything is only there to make something possible or to make something go away. However many different ways I've got to say it, however many times I have to say it, this is the key lesson. I spend 75% of my time just getting people to understand this concept. It has nothing to do with your business. Nobody cares. They don't care about my business either. It's okay. They are trying to get somewhere and something's in the way. The more you show that you understand that situation and that you are a solution for that, the more your brand is going to have value. That's how you're going to get your uh, scale. In other words, it's not about you. Next, some quick advice from Eden Gold's podcast, Life After High School, Your Ultimate Guide to Thriving in Adulthood. She shares her top hacks for how to supercharge your productivity. Who couldn't use these tips? I ask myself as I record this podcast in my closet after putting my kids to bed because I couldn't get it done earlier. Here are my top hacks for workspace optimization for all of my busy young adults out there who want to get more done in less time. Number one is a must. It's the Pomodoro study method. It's a period of working followed by a mandatory break. Two is to set the mood with candles, lights, and shout out to my sister. She's an artist and this is her artwork. Now back to the Pomodoro study method. I have my laptop Bluetooth to my JBL speaker so that I can use the Pomodoro timer in conjunction with lo-fi. My go-to is of course Apple AirPods. But if you are more of a headphones kind of gal or lad, then the Bose headphones are absolutely insane. I love them. I've had them for years. Even I even sweat with them and work out with them and they're great. Okay, laptop organization. All of my emails are categorized. You can categorize your emails in a way that makes sense for you. For example, I have all of the brand collaborations on the side and in red so I can easily do my business. Last but not least, coffee is an absolute must and I really care about the kind of coffee that I drink. My favorite coffee right now is superhuman coffee. It's instant coffee, so it's easy. I like it because it doesn't make me feel jittery at all and it's packed with probiotics and vitamins. Follow me for all things adulting. Eighth up, we hear from Minyaka, a trauma-informed relationship and life coach. She shares with us an idea that changed her perspective and has helped her live with trauma. This is what my therapist told me and it totally reframed the way that I think about my trauma. They said, your trauma is not going to change. It's not going to unhappen. You're not going to be untraumatized. What you have to do is learn how to not respond to life through the lens of your trauma. You're gonna to have to learn how to not react to life through the lens of your trauma. And I know you do it. I know you do it too. I know that sometimes your partner pisses you off and it's not that your partner has pissed you off. It's because they have triggered something that has happened before. And so you are responding to this thing from your trauma. And so healing calls you to go, what's the truth here? And what is my trauma here? And I want you to sit with that, think about it. In what ways do I respond through the lens of my trauma in my own life? And how can I heal? 
Ninth, we have a revealing episode from Tora Mills, a career coach. She shares the strategy that she personally used to continually get promoted, moving from a relatively low-paying job to a six-figure salary. I want to talk about the one strategy that has helped me consistently increase my income when it came to my career. I'm talking about how I moved from the 1275 to then move into 35 to move into 65, then to 75. And then you guys know there was a big jump of 145 plus. Let's get into how we do this. Oftentimes when people go to a company, they look at the job description and they want to do this. I'm going to do my job and I go home. You can do your job and go home, but I cannot tell you how many people get passed over for promotions because they just do their job and go home. Am I telling you to do extra? Am I telling you to do more? No. But what I am telling you, when you do extra, I want you to be strategic about the extra that you take on. Every company has a gap. Every company has a need. And most of the time, It is up to you to spot it before the organization sees it, creates a position, and starts hiring for it. What you do, identify the gap, start training yourself to be able to deliver and play up that gap, and be able to close that gap in the organization, and then start putting it on people's mind that this is a problem. But while you're putting it on people's mind that it's a problem, also market yourself and the solution that you're able to propose and how you're going to solve this problem. Because by the time the organization realizes the problem a year, two, three from now, you basically created your own position. And now everyone in the organization knows that you're a subject matter expert and that position is yours to walk into. This is how you create your own opportunity. This is how you empower yourself. Bye, you guys. Finally, to wrap it up, We have this short episode of the perennially popular Sky Gazing with Carolinda about how we will have two full moons this month. When August comes, the lakes do teem with many fishes. It must seem that native people were so right to name the sturgeon moon so bright. This month we have a lunar extravaganza. Why? Because there are not one but two full moons this month, and both are supermoons. The full sturgeon moon on August 1st is the second of four supermoons this summer. The next one, the full blue moon, comes on August 30th. First, let's talk about the supermoon. Remember, because the moon's orbit is more of an oval than a perfect circle, its distance from the Earth changes throughout the month. A supermoon appears to be much larger than a regular full moon because it is at its closest point to Earth so it seems larger and brighter than an average non-supermoon. The sturgeon moon is named after North America's largest fish, whose lineage can be traced back 136 million years. And according to the Old Farmer's Almanac, there are about 29 species of sturgeon worldwide, including the lake sturgeon found in our own Great Lakes here in the States. Some of these lake sturgeon can be as big as a Volkswagen. Try frying that in a pan. Other names for this full moon include grain moon, green corn moon, lynx moon, fruit moon, and lightning moon. And what about a blue moon? If you read my book, Once in a Full Moon, you know that the traditional definition of a blue moon is the 13th one in a year. But don't expect it to be blue in color. 
I hope you enjoyed this taste of just some of our favorites from this week. If you did, please subscribe or follow. We really appreciate your support as we grow our show. By the way, there are many, many more great shows available on Shortcast Club, our app. Download the app from the iOS or Android App Store. Search for Shortcast Club. That's two words. Thanks and happy listening.